0: We can. I don't need to give you an excuse to fall asleep, do I? I <laughs> Second Samuel chapter two. I want to invite you guys uh, as we continue to take a look. Now as we look at as we look at David's life in 2 Samuel, in the beginning of 2 of Second, Second Samuel really divides into three parts. And as we look at the three parts of 2 Samuel, first we're going to see. Will you turn me down a little bit? First, we're going to see David in his triumphs. The second thing we're going to see is David in his temptations or trials. And the third thing we're going to see is David in his tragedy. And we're going to see that the, the, the last part of David's life, because of choices he makes and things he does, because of the way life goes, we're going to see a lot of struggles in David's life later on. Some of those choices he's making, he thinks there's not going to be any, any fallout from, you know. I mean, what's the big deal? It's a little decision. But sometimes those little decisions later on in our life carry big ramifications. You know, we choose to do a certain thing, live a certain place, go to a certain area, and, and we then bear the fruit of those choices and, and the road or the path that our life takes in that place. That's why the scripture declares to us in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. He tells us to trust in the Lord how? With all, your heart. all our heart. Lean not into what? Your own, your own understanding. In all your ways? Acknowledge the Lord. Acknowledge the Lord. And what will He do? Direct our path. Direct our path. So God's going to guide us, but it all starts with that beginning, right? Trust in the Lord. Then not leaning into my own understanding. That means it's not about my plans or how I think it ought to go, but that I seek Him. That I go before the Lord. Hey, I can build the greatest outline and the most incredible sermon illustrations I can imagine. And I'll think it's wonderful. But if I do all of that before I seek the Lord in prayer, it's a waste of time. The Bible says they labor in vain who try to build the house without the Lord. Unless the Lord builds the house, right? now, that what the scripture says? They labor in vain who build it, unless, what, the Lord builds a house. So the key is that we seek in the Lord and that we're going before him. And David is such a great example of that most of the time. Most of the time, seeking the Lord, going before the Lord. But there are certain things in David's life that he thinks is not a big deal. I can do whatever I want. Those things are, how many wives should I have? By the time we're done tonight, he's going to have six. That's at least five too many. By the way, that's at least five too many according to the Bible in the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to who? His wife. His wife. Uh, singular, right? To be joined to his wife. The scripture laid out for the kings when the kings were coming, the Bible laid out for them not to multiply wives for themselves. The reason the scripture said that is because when you become king... The way that the ancient world would make peace with other nations, the same way they did it in every, every country, they took a wife. So let's say England doesn't want to go to war with France. So What's he do? He marries a princess from France and they make peace. But then later on he doesn't want to go to war against Spain. So what's he do? Marries a princess in Spain, divorces the one in, in France. Well, back in the ancient world, they just added wives. And they kept adding them and adding them and adding them. A lot of times we look at Solomon and we say, man, Solomon, you're, you're a little carried away, right? 300 plus wives, that's a lot. 700 concubines, that's even more. Where'd he learn that from? From his dad. From his dad. So there are areas in his life, and a lot of times in our world, listen, we try to divide our world into two parts. Secular and sacred. There's the secular world, right? That's where I go work my real job or do my real thing. And then there's the sacred world. That's where I come and worship the Lord. But nowhere in the pages of scripture is our world divided into two. We do that. So our lives either gonna be secular or sacred. We either gonna choose to trust the Lord and not lean into our own understanding and go to Him. And ask his blessing on those decisions of life. Or we're going to reap the fruit of the choices. And that's what happens in David's life as well. We'll see that as David goes on. As we are introduced to his children or some of his children. Tonight you're going to want to remember their names. Because they all come back again. They're all a part of his story. Well Second Samuel beginning in chapter 2 begins to tell us the story of David as king. Now it happened after this that David inquired of the Lord saying, "Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah?" And the Lord said to him, "Go up." And David said, "Well, where shall I go up?" And he said to Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite. Now the first thing we see here in the beginning is pretty cool. David, okay, Saul's dead. David had been waiting all these many years, as many as 20 years from the time he was anointed by Samuel till now Saul's dead. And so David, but before he just goes and takes the crown, before he goes and sets up a throne, what does he do? He says, Lord, where should I go? Should I go up into the cities of Judah? The Lord says yes. Well, he doesn't just take off and decide which city he wants to go to. What's he say? Which one? Where shall I go? He's going before the Lord. But then, in the same verse, you have him connected with these two women. You have Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and you have Abigail, the widow of Nabal. Now, when we read about David taking them as a wife, do we read that same phrase? And David sought the Lord and said, Lord, is this the wife that I should take? No. Because sometimes we think, I got this part handled. I got it all worked out. I can't tell you how many people will come to me and say, Yeah, Jackie, I know that the Bible says not to be unequally yoked together with an unbeliever, but I'm really in love, and it's all going to work out, and I know it's all going to be okay. And the counsel, no matter how the council goes, is rejected. They move on. They, they go forward into a relationship, and years later, we discover that they're split up. We're having serious troubles because they're unequally yoked. They're going two different ways. The Bible said not to yoke that together. But see, that's, that's a part of my life I can handle. I can handle that. How about what, what am I going to do for a living? What's my, what's my career choice in life going to be? I got that handled. That's just, I'm going to be what I, what I was always going to be. I'm going to do what I was always going to do. So many of those areas in our life we look at are, are areas that we have neglected to bring before the Lord. Say, Lord, is this where you would have me? Is this what you would have me do? To, to bring those things to him and ask his blessing. Well, that's what David does. He asks them where to go. But he neglects the area of his wives. In verse 3 it says, So David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, and they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. Hebron, by the way, is a city of refuge. You're going to want to remember that. Remember when we went through the book of Leviticus, we talked about the cities of refuge, you remember? The cities of refuge were used for the man, the, the man who had who accidentally killed uh, uh, someone, and he could flee to a city of refuge, and there he would receive a fair trial. The, the kinsman redeemer, the, the avenger of blood of the family, see, there was no police, you, you know that, right? No police in ancient Israel, ever. Each family took care of the issues. If somebody did something, the kinsman redeemer, the next of kin, he dealt with it. If someone killed a brother, then you went to him from blood. Blood is required. That's what the scripture laid out. So he would go do that. So if that had happened, and there's a part of the story that people don't understand or don't know, you would go to a city of refuge, and in the city of refuge, you would be able to to find peace, safety, and an opportunity to be able to to. Share your side of, the, of it, and the people of the city would judge. The, the, the leaders of the city and the gate would judge that place. Well, Hebron is such a place. Cities of refuge in the scripture, guys, is always a picture of Christ. Where do we find our refuge? Where do we find forgiveness? Where do we find our lawyer, our, our one who acquits us, who declares us innocent, who clothes us with righteousness? It's Jesus Christ. That's what he does. Well, David goes to Hebron and there he sets it up. It says the men of Judah came and there they anointed David king over what? The house of Judah. He's not king of Israel yet. It's actually going to be better than seven years still before he becomes king of Israel. But he's king of Judah and really he's king of Hebron, one city in Judah. Yet he is God's anointed. But what we see is they anoint him. They they anointed David king, and they told David saying, the men of Jabesh Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. You remember last time Saul and his and his uh, sons had been taken and and nailed to the walls of Bethshan, and so the men of Jabesh Gilead went and got him down. Jabesh Gilead was the people that Saul rescued. In the very first battle, he led his king. And here, the, those men remember Saul's faithfulness. When Saul began, he began well. And so they went and pulled Saul and his sons, risked their life to give them, be able to bring them back and give them a burial. So they tell David that that what has taken place. So David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, You are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord. To Saul and have buried him. All throughout the scripture, listen, you will not find David badmouth Saul. Not once. Now, Saul tried to pin David to a wall with a spear. Saul tried to kill David. Saul went after David nonstop. But when Saul, listen, when Saul died, there is only one person who had a a funeral procession and sang a lament. It wasn't Ishbosheth, who we're going to meet in a minute, who's the, the last remaining son of Saul. Only one person sang and mourned over Saul. David, his enemy. What is it that Jesus said? You've heard it said in days of old, To love your neighbor as yourself. But I say. Love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you. For if you love those. Who love you in return. What reward have you? Don't the tax collectors do that also? The challenge that Jesus lays out for us. Is to love our enemies. Why? You know I struggled with that for a long time. What's the point of, of loving my enemy? And. These last few weeks I've kind of been dealing with this, this concept of what's my motivation behind the things I do. You know, if I do holy things for God so God will bless me, that's manipulation. If I love my wife so she'll respect me or so she'll do things for me, that's manipulation. If I love my wife because I'm supposed to love my wife, that's proper motivation. It's not about what I'm going to get. And when I look at the things that the Bible says, the Bible goes on to say in Matthew chapter 6, when you do your charitable deeds, don't sound the trumpet like the heathen do. Don't draw attention to yourself. It says, don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Do your charitable deeds in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you how? Openly. But if I do my charitable deeds to receive a reward from the Father, that's manipulation. Why am I doing the terrible deeds? Why do I carry the rock? Why do I carry his cross and follow him? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says the one thing that God wants from us is that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I can tell my motive is pure when I love my enemy. Because I won't do that. I won't love my enemy to manipulate. I'll hate him, but I won't love him. Jesus gives us that insight. Love your enemy. We see David doing it. He loved Saul. He cared about Saul. He wrote a song for Saul. He proclaimed all the good things Saul ever did. And not one time in the lament of David for Saul did he say he's an evil king who didn't obey the, the Lord. Not one time. What he did say, he focused on every good thing Saul ever did. And that's how he wrote the lament. He laid it out. David loved his enemies. And he is called what? A man after God's own heart. Because when we see Jesus, what did he do? He loved his enemies. He loved the people that were pulling out his beard and spitting in his face. How do we know he loved them? Well, besides the fact that the scripture says that when we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly, that his love is made manifest toward us in this, that he died for us. Besides all of those things, the scripture tells when Jesus was pulled out on that cross, when he was nailed to the wood, when they pulled his shoulders out of joint to be able to strap him down to the cross, when they lifted him up and dropped him in the hole, when they did all these things to a man who had already been beaten, and his whole back laid open, his organs visible, his bones visible from the outside, when they did all that stuff, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, I might be able to maintain silence to an enemy who's done me wrong, who has beaten me, or even pulled out my little scraggly beard. He pulled it out and I might even be able to just look at him, but inside I'm hating him. And I won't be able to say anything or that hate comes out. Jesus said, love your enemies. When we love our enemies, we are more like God than any other time in our life. And our motive is pure because it's unnatural it's unnatural to be able to do that and I love that that's the way David was here David is anointed king some say as long as 20 years ago 20 years ago anointed king he fled from Saul for 10 years so we know it's at least 10 years running around living in the caves now Saul's dead why didn't he just march down to Jerusalem and set up his throne and say I'm supposed to be king because he only wanted in his life what God wanted him to have. And he said, if God wants me to be king, then he'll do it and I don't have to do a thing. And ultimately, that's what God's going to do. But you know what? It's going to take longer. You guys ever have a hard time waiting for stuff? I got a hard time. I have a, I have a hard time waiting for things. When I put in butter popcorn in a microwave... And i got to wait that two and a half minutes or whatever it is. I don't know what it is because I just push the thing that looks like a popcorn. I push that and it starts popping. But as soon as I can smell the butter, I'm ready. Right? I'll pop that thing open. But if I pop it open too soon, I'll, I'm going to bust all my teeth out of my head, right? Because you can't eat the popcorn like that. So you have to sit and wait until it's finished. That's what David did. Only We're talking about waiting two and a half minutes. David's waiting 20 years or more. How, how long did Moses wait? 40. Well, 40 years he was trained in the best schools of Egypt. Then, 40 years he was on the backside of the desert, God learned, trying to make him humble. After 80 years, Moses is 80 years old, God says, now I can use you. Well, Josiah is 12. 12 years old, anointed by God. Jeremiah, the Bible says he's anointed from the womb. I called you, I ordained you a prophet before you were born. Hey, God has all kinds of ways, sometimes long, sometimes short. The key is a man after God's own heart will learn to wait upon the Lord. Those who wait upon the Lord will do what? They renew their strength, right? They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. They'll be able to mount up with wings of eagles. Now, what the scripture declares, and what's the key to it all? You wait upon the Lord. Wait for God's time. Don't self promote. Don't self promote. There was a time, there was a time, listen, there was a time in my life that uh, uh, I was at, I was serving at uh, Joshua Springs and I was, had been in the as the assistant pastor for Pastor Gerald for several years, and uh, we we started an outreach to Twenty Nine Palms, and I started getting a hankering for you know wanting to spread my wings and go. When we originally came to Joshua Springs, Kathy and I, when we pulled up, Kathy really loved it there, and I said, "Babe, don't get too used to this because I'm only here for training. I know God's going to call us out. One day we're going to leave." After 10 years, I was pretty sure that I missed that whole thing, and I was supposed to stay. And I remember when, when we first started talking about folks from Joshua Springs coming out to Idaho to help out. Brent was still alive, but help out, and, and help out with the pulpit, and just try to make things as best we could a little bit easier, because we had just gone through a similar thing with our pastor's wife, and... And I remember I went to Pastor Gerald then, and I says, hey, are you going to put my name on the docket that I can go out that way? And he said, nope. And I said, well, I think you should. You better do it, or I'm going to have a conniption and have a cow. (laughs) That's not what I did. You see, the position of assistant pastor is a, is that of a person who's in submission to, to make the vision or direction of the head pastor happen. That's my job. I'm a number two. When you're a number two, when number one says, hey, I, we need to build a bigger sanctuary or figure out how to solve this parking issues or we need to find out how... Then you did it. That's what you did. So when the one whom God placed me under to learn and to grow said no, I said Okay. And I didn't sweat it. Just let it go. And it's a whole, almost two years later, that he comes to me one day in the the office. I still remember he comes in the office. He said, Jackie, way back then, when you asked me about Idaho, if I had let you go, if I had said, yeah, you could go, and if they had wanted you, would you have gone? And I said, yeah. Out of it. He said, will you still go? And I said, yeah, I'll still go. And here we are, three years after that. We have to learn, wait on the Lord. Now, I could have got mad at Gerald, and I could have said, I know that I have the ability to go on and and start a church somewhere, so if you're not going to let me go, I'll go do it myself. Does that make any sense? If I want to do a work of the Lord for me to, to... to stomp out of the place where God's raising me up and say, I'm going to go make it happen by myself. Unless the Lord builds a house, they labor in vain who build it. And just like David, God is able to do the thing, right? He's able to... Who who could ever believe the story that, that God would do, that, that you guys would go through with Brent and with Steve and what God would do to get me here? And that's a lot of stuff. But it was... God moving and working. And when He does it, it happens. When men do it, it gets all messed up. David didn't try to make nothing happen. He just sat down and became king. And served where he was. The Bible says to bloom where you are planted. That's what the Apostle Paul said. The Apostle Paul said, don't desire for other things. Don't sit down and say... I know a lot of people who do this. They they feel called to ministry. And a lot of times the first ministry that they'll serve in is Sunday school or youth ministry. And they'll serve in Sunday school or youth ministry. But in their mind, they're looking forward to a promotion to something bigger, something greater, something else. But Paul said, bloom where you're planted. He said, don't despise the day of small beginnings. Be faithful in the little things. We've all heard these things, right? To be faithful... Where we are, to bloom where we're planted, to allow God to do the work. And when it's time for God to move, He may never move. He may leave you there in that place because that's the spot God wants you in. But you don't have to go out and start a campaign to move on. God will do it. And that's what we see in David. That's what we see in David's heart. That's what we see that David has done. So he's... He's sitting there and he's going to honor the men of Jabesh Gilead for what they've done for Saul, for how they have taken care of him. He says in verse 7, Now therefore let your hands be strengthened and be valiant, for your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. So he tells the men of Jabesh Gilead, I'm king of Judah. Not really anywhere else. But your master Saul is dead. David, who mourned, David, who loved. But Abner, the son of Ner, that was Saul's right hand man. Okay, this is Saul's general. Commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manaheim, and he made him king over Gilead, over the Asherites, over Jezreel, over Ephraim, over Benjamin, and over all Israel. So, Ishbosheth, Saul's son was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and he reigned two years. Only the house of Judah followed David. So now we have a divided kingdom, right? House of Judah, one of 12 tribes, the other 11 under Ishbosheth, one of Saul's sons. One of Saul's sons. So it says, In the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. So David's going to be king for seven years, six months of Judah, before the Lord's going to raise him up. Now it says, And Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth and the son of Saul went out from Mahanim to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zariah, the servants of David, went out and met them by the pool of Gibeon. So they sat down, one on one side, of the pool and the other, on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Now, before we think they're playing soccer or something, you got two sides. Joab, who is David's most out of control right hand man. Joab is a great example of do whatever you want whenever you want to do it. He had a hard time following David's lead and David's command, and it's going to get him into trouble. You have Abner, who's the same kind of guy. Both of them are generals for the opposing kings. And they meet together at this pool. And they meet together, and instead of saying, hey, why don't we just have these armies, let's just fight it out, they decide, just pick your young men. So they're going to pick 12 guys from each side. You remember how Goliath stood up and said, just one-on-one, and we'll fight, and the winner wins? Well, in this case, they're going to do 12 on 12. They're going to fight. And the winner of the fight, you know, wins. Rather than having the armies slaughter one another, this way there's only 12 on each side. They're going to be affected. So they arose and went over by number 12 from Benjamin. That's from Abner. Followers of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 of the servants of David. And each one grasped his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore, that place was called the Field of Sharp Swords, which is in Gibeon. So they battle. Now what happens is, Joab's guys win. Joab's guys prevail. But once the bloodshed starts, the armies go at each other. Instead of just sitting apart or allowing that thing to take place, they decide to go at each other. So look what happens. There was a fierce battle that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. Now the three sons of Zariah were there. Okay, three guys together. Joab, okay, Abishai, and Asael. Asael was a fleet as foot as a wild gazelle. Asael was like a marathon runner. He was a runner. These are three brothers, Joab of whom is the commander of David's army. So the Bible's saying, okay, there's this big battle. They they tried to do 12 on 12. It didn't work out. Everybody starts fighting. And you have one of Joab's brothers who's going to go after Abner. The brother of Joab is a marathon runner. Abner is a seasoned veteran fighter. It's not going to end too good. It's a bad idea. But nonetheless, he's going to go after him. He's going to take off after him. Well, look what happens. It says, So Asael pursued Abner, and in going, he did not turn from the right hand or to the left from following Abner. And Abner looked behind him and said, Are you Asael? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right or to your left and lay hold of one of your young men and take his armor for yourself. Because this guy's just running. He's a runner. You got Abner, who's not moving all that fast, just just staying slightly ahead of him. But he's dressed for battle. I'll say, "Hell, oh, he's just trucking. He's got his dolphin shorts on and his T-shirt, and he's out running." Oh, I'm going to keep up with you. And so Abner says, "Man, go get some armor on. What are you doing? Turn to the right or turn to the left. Don't don't keep following me." And then uh, Abner said to him, "Turn aside and and." Asael would not turn aside from following him. So Abner again said to Asael, turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I face your brother Joab? Now, Joab, on the other hand, is a brawler. Joab's a fighter. He's been fighting his whole life. Abner's a fighter, been fighting his whole life. They've been doing wars ever since they could. And so he says, man, Asael, I'm not trying to cause problems between the families. I'm not trying to cause grief between the families. Just turn aside. Why are you chasing me? But Asael would not. He continues to to follow. However, he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the blunt end of the spear so that the spear came out of his back and he fell down there and died on the spot. Abner struck him with the blunt end of the spear. you catch that? Not the pointy end. And pushed it all the way through his body. And he died. Chasing Abner. You know, sometimes we get our eyes so focused on an enemy. That we're willing to trade everything to go get him. Whatever it takes. I don't care what I lose, what I have to give up, what I have, what I. It's going to cost you everything. You'd be like Asael laying on the ground, dead, with nothing but hate, bitterness, anger in your heart, chasing your enemy. What did Jesus say? Love your enemy. Where's David? Is he there? No. Why? Because he didn't tell them to go. This is Joab and Abner's doing. This is their plan. David is busy trying to figure out how many more wives he can have. But Joab and Abner are out there doing this grief. And Asael, focused on just chasing down his enemy, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, I'm going to get you, dies needlessly. Needlessly because he was not able to let go of all that bitterness and anger and frustration and I'm going to get him, I'm going to get him, I'm going to get him. He didn't get him. He didn't get him. That's how it always works out. Our bitterness, our anger, our frustration, our jealousies, they get us. That's what the scripture lays out for us. Well, it says, Joab and Abishai also pursued Abner, and the sun was going down. When they came to the hill of Ammah, which is before Gia, by the road to the wilderness of Gibeon, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and the children of Benjamin gathered together behind Abner and became a unit and took a stand on the top of a hill. And Abner called to Joab and said, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that it will be bitter in the, latter, in the latter end? How long will it be then until you tell the people to return from pursuing their brethren? Now, when you look at this, don't lose sight of the fact that they're all brothers or cousins. It's all family, right? Twelve tribes of Israel were twelve brothers, right? So they're all related. Maybe might be a lot of people, but they're all related. And they're killing each other over nothing. So Abner says, Joab, man, let's stop. What are we doing? What's going on? What's happening? And Joab said, as God lives, unless you had spoken, surely by morning all the people would have given up pursuing their brethren. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the people stopped, and did not pursue Israel anymore, nor did they fight anymore. Then Abner and his men went on all that night through the plain, crossed over the Jordan and went through Bithron, and they came to Machanaim. But Joab doesn't know Asael is dead. Remember, Asael was chasing Abner on his own. Joab doesn't know. It says in verse 30, So Joab returned from pursuing Abner. And when he had gathered all the people together, there was missing of David's servant 19 men, And Asael, his brother. But the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin and Abner's men 360 men who had died. And they took up Asael and buried him in his father's tomb, which was in Bethlehem. And Joab and his men went all night, and they came to Hebron at daybreak. Well, David's not even there. This is these two guys trying to settle things. Nobody's going before the Lord. Nobody's seeking God's plan. This is men. This is what happens when men seek their own way. The Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end is death. We think we're doing great without the Lord, but we're not. We got to have him. He's that guide to lead us through the darkness. Otherwise, what Jesus said to the Pharisees is true of us. Blind guides of the blind. Both of you will fall into a pit. How do you know what's around the next bend? What's what's going to, to face you in the next moments? We want to go before the Lord. Well, chapter 3 goes on. Now, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. But David grew stronger and stronger in the house of Saul, weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David in Hebron. Hmm. His firstborn was Amnon. By Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess. Remember him. Amnon. Amnon is a rapist and a murderer. Well, not yet. Now he's just a baby. But that's what he's going to be. His second, Chiliab, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. Oh, there's two. Oh, there's more. The third... Absalom, the son of Machah, the daughter of Talmai, the king of Jeshur. Also he made peace with Jeshur and, and married his daughter. And she gave birth to Absalom. We remember him, right? He's the one who's going to try to steal the kingdom from David. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. Where, who's Haggith? Where'd she come from? I don't know. That's the fifth. And Shephatiah the son of Abital, and the sixth Ithream of David's wife Eglah; these were born to David in Hebron. When he went to Hebron, how many wives did he have? Two. Now he's got six. Too many. Too many. What, what's he doing? All you have all these battles, all these wars, all these fights going on, and what's David done? He's been marrying women. See, Solomon come by it honest. Because he saw it in his father's life. And where did this road lead his father? Amnon's going to rape one of David's daughters. And commit murder. Absalom's going to kill him. And start an insurrection and a rebellion against his father David. And Adonijah is also going to try to steal the crown from his father. Now when David was having these wives and looking at these little babies, do you think that's the future he saw in their face? No, oh, he had all kind of hopes, but what was he doing? He was, he was multiplying wives to himself. And that kind of fam- family dynamic was going to create in these kids what, what it created jealousy between multiple wives and their kids and who's really the next for the throne and why should your son be or why what about this son or which one do I favor or which one do I love more this is the mistakes the problem that David had this area of his life that he said I got this part handled is going to end up being his downfall all the way through his life when he falls What's his fall going to be over? Another woman. Right? And the tragedy that he's going to face in his life is watching the sword never leave his family. Child, killing child, fighting child, fighting father. Because of the road he chose way back then in Hebron. This little thing that he didn't need to seek the Lord over. It says in verse six. Now, it was so while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. So Abner is trying to build up his own power. Really, he's putting Ishbosheth on the throne to elevate his own position, so that somewhere down the line he might make a power play for king. Often the soldiers, the general of the army, they call that a coup, right? He goes after the ruler of the, that land and takes control. And the military takes over. We see that happen in our world today, too. Abner's doing the same kind of thing. He's trying to lay his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ayah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, why have you gone into my father's concubine? Now concubine basically was a wife without rights a woman that the king would take that he took as wife but had no rights as wife she could raise up children children that could be uh could sit on the throne someday but here the charge from Ishbosheth against Abner is you're taking one of my fathers now that was against all code you don't take another man's or the king's Wife or concubine as your own. But this charge is laid against Abner from Ishbosheth. Now, it's probably a bad call from Ishbosheth because the only thing keeping Ishbosheth on the throne is Abner. But he goes against Abner, and Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, to your father, and his brothers and his friends. And have not delivered you to the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. May God do so to Abner and more also. If I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. Whoa. What did Abner just say? Oh you mean Abner knew that David should have been king? Isn't that what he's saying? I'll do for David what the Lord has already sworn to him. So he knows he's in disobedience to God when he set up Ishbosheth, but all he cared about was self promotion, making a house, a name for himself, taking Saul's concubine, making himself established, maybe stealing a kingdom. He had a lot of goals, but none of those goals was to serve the Lord. He knew What God wanted him to do, and he wouldn't do it. You ever known anybody like that? That known what God wants him to do? We ever been in that place? I know what God wants me to do, but I don't want to do it. You're Abner. Abner knew, set up his own kingdom, went after his own things, turned his back. On the Lord. And of course, that's going to work out better for him in the long run. He says in verse 10 to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word because he was afraid of him. Ishbosheth is just a puppet king, As a child of Saul. He's not a warrior, he's just the kid who stayed in the palace. He was not on the battlefield with Saul, he wasn't a fighter, he was the youngest son. So he was probably never in line to be king. Jonathan would have been the next king if the line of Saul continued on. So Ishbosheth was just doing his own thing. Now Abner takes and makes him king all to keep himself in power. And Ishbosheth recognizes that I can't go against this guy. He'll kill me. So he doesn't answer another word to him. He gets silent. And Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying, whose is this land? saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. Now David is going to make another mistake. David's going to make another mistake. He's going to do something dumb. He's got six wives now. He needs a seventh, right? I mean, seventh is the number of perfection. So surely you should have seven wives. And he's not going to seek the Lord. He'll make a deal. Let's make a deal, right? Sometimes that deal you're making is with the devil, though, isn't it? Well, Abner comes to him, so David said, "Good. I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I will require of you: you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come and see me." Oh yeah, you remember Michael? Michael was his first wife. Now, he hasn't seen Michael for 10 to 17 years at this point. You get that, right? David was king there in Hebron for seven years. He ran from from Saul for 10. If this is toward the end of that seven-year period of time, it's 17 years. And he's going to say, go get that wife I lost way back then in the beginning. Why? For what purpose? Because you're madly in love with Michael? No, that's not it. I'll tell you what it is. Because Michael is of the line of Saul. And when he has her, he has legal claim to the throne. Give me another wife. Because that's not going to cause them problems later on, right? All six of the other ones are getting along fabulously so far. So that adding the seventh one ought to be a, a dream. Good plan, good plan. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, "Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines." Anytime the dowry or the bride price was a hundred foreskins of other men, it's probably not going to be a great marriage. But nonetheless, this is what he wants. So Ishbosheth sent and took her. From her husband. From Paltiel the son of Laish. And her husband went along with her to Bahrim. Weeping behind her. And Abner said to him. Go away. And he left. Because what you'll discover in the pages of scripture. Is when Abner or Joab said. Knock it off. People stopped because the next thing they did was put the back end of a spear through your belly without the pointy end. So he left. David, what are you doing? What do you need Michael for? Where was all that trust? But you see, even a man or woman after God's own heart, after all these years, will begin to try to manipulate the situation to fit what they know God's trying to do. I'm just going to manipulate it. I'm going to gain legal title to the crown by having Michael, Saul's daughter, as my wife. She's supposed to be mine anyway, although I haven't seen her for 17 years, and she's married to another man. But I'm going to take her away from him, take her away from that or the family, whatever they had, and she's going to be my wife again. So they go get her and drag her back to David. How's that usually work out for a marriage? Pretty good, right? You know, go, lay hold of a woman, drag her in irons and chains to a husband, take chains off and say, there. Here you go. And they live happily ever after. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. He, he goes and he brings her to him. And Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. This is Abner talking. How does he know all this stuff? He knew all this stuff when he set up Ishbosheth as king. Does Abner really care about the Lord's plans? No. Ishbosheth made him mad, and now he's trying to get back at Ishbosheth, so he's gonna take the kingdom away from him and give it to David. Is he honestly gonna serve David? Is he gonna be David's right-hand man? Well, that will create a problem, because who's David's right-hand man right now? Joab. Joab's David's right-hand man, and who killed his brother? Abner killed his brother. Abner killed Joab's brother, Asahel. Now Abner's trying to make a play to become the right-hand man of David, and is the right-hand man of David, who currently is Joab, who's the guy who Abner killed his brother. Now this sounds like a, a happy family, right? It should all work out famously. I don't think any of us should seek the Lord or ask God what he wants. We're doing fine by ourselves, aren't we? We're making a, just a stand-up kingdom. Woohoo! This is great. If, if the motivation behind the things we're doing is for ourself, this is what happens. A mess. And we end up being angry at God and shaking our fist at him and saying, What have you done? What have you done to my life? What's going on? I thought you were, you you, you, you know, you had plans or whatever, good things that were gonna be a part in and and look at all the chaos in my life. But where's David? He's not talking to the Lord. What about Abner? He's not talking to the Lord. What about Joab? He's not talking to the Lord. David's too busy adding wives for himself. Now he's up to seven. It's crazy. Yet, he's still called a man after God's own heart because it's not about being perfect. It's about knowing where to return when you fall off. In the first letter to the seven churches of, of, uh, of uh, Turkey, actually, the seven churches that we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, the first letter is the church at Ephesus. Do you remember the charge of the church at Ephesus? The Lord always has a commendation to the seven letters. That means something they're doing well. And he's got a condemnation, something they need to fix. And his challenge is, let him who has ears hear what the Spirit's saying to who? To the churches. So the letter to the church at Ephesus and Smyrna and and Pergamos and all the rest of them are for... All of us to gain something from. If you have an ear. Everybody in here has them. So if you have ears to hear. That be you. Hear what the spirit of the Lord is saying to the church is. What was the condemnation that God had. Against the church at Ephesus. Left they their left their first love. Didn't lose it. They left it. The true test of a man or woman. After God's own heart. Is when they know. I've left my first love. They'll do what Jesus told the church at Ephesus to do. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and return. Remember from where you have fallen. That's the key to David being a man after God's own heart. That's the key for you. It's not that David would, would change his whole life, man. He's going to mess up from now to the time he goes and sees the Lord. Guess what you're going to do? You're going to mess up from now until the time you see the Lord. The key is to recognize. Remember from where you have fallen. Repent. What's repent mean? Repent means change your direction. Here David is going, making his own plans. But here soon, in about a chapter, he's going to stop, turn, and go back toward the Lord. And he's going to return to where he was. That means he's going to go back to his first love. And that's the key. Why did the scriptures say not to multiply wives for yourself? The Lord said they will turn your heart against the Lord. And what do we see in David's life? Now he's got seven. And we see no calling upon the name of the Lord. Right? In in chapter 2, how did it start? Lord, where shall I go? Lord, what city shall I go to? He's going before the Lord. But he's added five wives now. He's got all kind of things to worry about. Think about the honeydew list you have at one. <laughs> now make it seven. And you know them seven don't all live in the same house. So that's seven different houses to fix. Plumbing backed up. Or whatever things are going on in the house to deal with. And David's focus is somewhere else. During this time. Well. Abner says to David. In verse 21, Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all of Israel to my Lord the King, and they will make a covenant with you, that you may reign over all that your heart desires. Huh, David, when did it become about your heart? When did it become about you? Come on. Whatever your heart desires, David, that's what you should have. And at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with him. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he had gone in peace. So remember I told you Hebron was a city of refuge, right? A place where you can get a fair trial. A place where if you killed somebody's, say, brother, then you were supposed to be able to find safety until there was a, a, a righteous judgment. The reality is, if you slain a brother in war, that's not murder. But nonetheless, you have Joab, who's the next akin of Asael, and who's also the right-hand man of David, and he would like to hold on to his position, wouldn't he? He wants to continue to be in charge of the army for David. He doesn't want to see Abner raised up. So when Joab and all the troops who were with him had come... They told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king. And he sent him away, and he's gone in peace. Hey, the guy who killed your brother was here. And Joab came to the king and said, what have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away, and he has already gone? Wait a minute. Who are you talking to? You see how messed up things are? Uh, Joab, you're talking to the king. Like he's just, you know, another guy on the block. No respect. Just rebuking the king. But that's not going to be the first time in David's life that he's going to be rebuked. The neat thing about David is, when that rebuke comes, oftentimes, David wakes up and says, How did I get here? What's going on? What's happening? I once had a guy come up after a sermon one time. I taught a sermon. And in these days, I really was hinged on if people came up and told me they liked it. You know, then I knew I had done good. And if nobody came up, it must have been bad back in these days. Today, it's not like I don't really care. (laughs) Sorry. Maybe that sounds bad. Uh, All I care about is delivering what God gave me to share and either they'll put you on your shoulders and hail you as the greatest, or they'll throw you in a pit like they did Jeremiah. But the point is, that I deliver what God gave me to deliver? That's my focus on whether something's right or not. But back then, it wasn't that way. And so I'm teaching, and there's two, uh, two, two Wednesday night services at uh, Joshua Springs. I just finished the 4.30 service, and the guy comes up to me, and he goes, Man, when you pray, I can really sense your heart, but when you teach man, brother, it it is just not very good at all. (laughs) Wow. How about saying, you know, good evening, how you doing today before you bring the rebuke, brother, you know. But anyways, he told me and it was kind of a hard thing to swallow. And I I remember immediately I want to go to defending myself. But, you know, I stopped myself and I said, how do I know that this is not from the voice of God through this guy to me so he said I had actually somebody else had been telling me something about back in those days I wrote everything out and I I taught from notes and uh, that was the last day I taught from notes threw them away went through whatever I poured in is what comes out Occasionally I'll have an outline or something So I go straight through the chapter Instead of take all these crazy ways to it But but still what I do Because I took that as the voice of God I went and actually told a friend Man you won't believe what this guy said And they're like Man you need to that. Don't listen to that guy And I'm like what do you mean don't listen to him How do I know that's not the voice of God Is that how you hear rebuke from people When someone rebukes you Like Abner rebuking David Do you immediately claim to your rights I'm a king Who are you to tell me yeah often but how do you know that that's not God trying to speak to you? How do you know does it have to what if he's not a believer? Has God ever spoken through unbelievers before? yeah you better bet there's this fella named Caiaphas who is part of crucifying Jesus who prophesies you remember? He says, it's expedient that one man die for all the people. I mean, that's pretty important prophecy that he makes over Jesus, but he's not a believer. He's, he's roasting in the, in the pit of hell, or he will be one day. So we want to be able to have eyes. He brings this rebuke to David and he says these things. Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Nir, came to deceive you and to know you're going out and you're, and you're coming in. And to know all that you are doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers from Abner, or after Abner, and brought him back from the well of Syrah. But David didn't know it. And now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak to him privately. Hey, brother, I just want to tell you something. He stabbed him. And he died for the blood of Asael, his brother. What a mess. What a mess afterward when David heard it he said my kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever for the blood of Abner the son of Ner let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house and let there never fail to be in the house of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread so Joab and Abishai and his brother killed Abner because he killed their brother Asael and Gibeon uh, during the battle David makes this Prophecy over the house of jo- Joab. Don't care. He's like, well, whatever. You know, David. Blah 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 blah. Whatever. You know, so he, to, to Joab, David sounds like the teacher and Charlie Brown. Ma 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 Yeah, okay. Whatever you say. Then David said to Joab and all the people who were with him, "Tear your clothes and gird yourself with sackcloth and mourn for Abner." And King David followed the coffin, and they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner, and all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner. Should Abner die like a fool? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. But as a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. And all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. And all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zariah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. What a mess. All kind of chaos in the life of David. You remember there was a time when he was a young man, an anointed king, that he thought being king would be cool. Think he still thinks that? Woo-hoo, I can't wait. Man, I, I don't think he thinks that. But he's going to get himself on track. And he's going to remember from where he has fallen. And he'll repent. And he'll return. And he'll do the things that God has for him to do. But what I want you to see is when his motivation is pure, David's at his best. When he's loving his enemies like Saul. When he's seeking the Lord. David's at his best. He's a man after God's own heart. But when his motivation is about. Getting his rights. Getting what he deserves. God promised me all this time ago. What's everything look like? Chaos. It's the same for us. When our focus. Is us. Self. Listen. Then God's not on the throne. You are. And you are calling the shots. And you are sowing the seed. And you will reap the harvest. Don't fool yourself into thinking God's on the throne of my life if self is focus. If God's on the throne, self isn't focus. He is. the Lord, what does God want of me? What is God? I love Job. Remember Job, all the things he went through in his life? When you look at the life of Job and you hear the things Job has to say, and that's kind of cool, Job says, Shall we not accept good? If we accept good from the Lord, shall we not also accept bad? And then he says, Though he slay me, what? yet I will serve him. That's God on the throne. If I'm looking at the things in my life and I'm wondering all the whys and the hows and what do I do and how do I fix it? God's not on the throne, I am. And things get a little crazy then. We want to allow God to be on the throne, amen? Why not you stand up with me, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you that we could study your word and that we could draw close to you, God. I thank you for the truth of your word your word is true and every man a liar. God, we pray that you would help us grow. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, Lord, if we find ourselves with self on the throne. That you would help us remember from where we have fallen. To repent and to return to the days when we were so in love with God. Because that's the place we're at our best. God, I pray that you would encourage each of us to walk in that place as we seek to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.